Love the nouns, love the pronouns, impersonal and personal. Love the words from ELFM. So good evening and welcome to Love the Words here on East Leeds FM. And tonight we're talking to the poet Matt Nicholson. Hello, Matt. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very nice to have you. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Good. Surviving. Good, surviving. Surviving, that's, what we, that's all you need to do at the moment. <laughs> um, we're going to be talking about your new um, poetry collection, Small Havocs, uh, published by Yaffle Press. Um, so, which is out and which I've read, I'm very much uh, in admiration of it. So, it'd be great to hear some work from from Small Havocs. Um, first of all, Matt, just to give us a sense of of what you do. I mean, on in normal times, what does a week hold for you? Is it mainly about your your own writing, or is there something else you do? It's, it's you know, as a as a as poets, as artists, we all seem to sort of survive in our different ways. <laughs> yes. Um, well, mainly I'm, I'm I'm one of these people that lacks discipline. So I, my week seems to um, involve forcing myself to my desk on a daily basis to at least sort of get four or five hours of, uh, albeit staring at blank sheets of paper for large amounts of time, but to, to try and force myself to write more and more. Um, thank, thanks to the government, I've, I've um, managed to do quite a lot of walking in the last six months or so. Um, my, my daily government-sponsored walk has, has been a major factor. Um, but uh, I do a lot of reading, I do a lot of writing, and I do a lot of walking and listening to music. And uh, I'm, I'm very lucky in that respect, but um, mainly because I have a heart condition. I, I don't have a, uh, in inverted commas, proper job. So Right. Well, I, I can think of worse ways to spend the time reading and, and yes. writing and walking. And I suppose, yeah, a lot of us have done that. Does the, does the walking feed the writing, Matt? It does, I think, yeah. I mean, there's several um, times when I've come home um, to about 15 emails that I've sent myself from a long walk, um, usually type straight into the phone as I'm walking along, trying not to wander into the road, um, and uh, then try and pull them pull all the bits together into something when I get home. Fantastic. Well, perhaps you, to, just to kick us off, you could could read a poem from, from Small Havoc, perhaps even the first one. Yeah. Okay. Um, this first poem is um, a poem that's really a prayer, a secular prayer to the vacuum, and it's called Cerebellum. Teach me to draw, to poach eggs, to bring a streak-free shine to every mirror in the house. Then teach me to swim, bare beneath the rush hour bridge, to dive down to the cloying riverbed where all the discarded pistols lie. 
And if there is time, on any given Sunday, teach me to be emancipated, to be satisfied, like Einstein in a garden shed. It's a great start to the collection. I've really enjoyed that poem. I enjoyed many others as well. Um, so, first of all, the title of, of the collection, Matt, Small Havocs. Can you tell us anything about that? Yeah, I, I'm, it started off, I, I had sort of three or four new poems that I'd written and, and realised they were all really different and uh, different from each other. And uh, they got a few of them got published and, and stuff. And I, I was sitting there looking at them going, well, this, this certainly doesn't make a new collection because they're all so different in terms of their meaning and their, their uh, content. Um, but as, as time went on and I wrote more and more of the short poems that make up the book, um, I sort of realised that the one thing that they all had in common was they were all sort of um, about problems, about the sort of troubles and strifes and, and successes and, and loves and hates of, of a life. So they were the sort of the, the first world problems that make up a, a normal life, if, if you will. Um, so, yeah, uh, and then I wanted that juxtaposition between the mighty word havoc and and small, you know, because of that sort of contrast between what feels like a terrible trouble at, a t at the time, but is really, you know, in the grand scheme of things in perspective, pretty trivial sometimes. And havoc is a great word. I, it, you, you take these words for granted, or I do, and mm. suddenly I look at it there on the, on the front of your book and I think, havoc, what an extraordinary word that is. And where does it come from? I, I, I must look it up. Have you any idea? I've, I figured it as some kind of Viking-type word. I, I, I don't know why. It just felt right to have somebody with a, a pointy helmet coming towards me with a big knife with that sort of word. <laughs> well, and actually on the, on the cover of the book, now it's quite interesting. You've, you've chosen, presumably you've chosen a, an image which is quite pastoral, really. It's some stepping mm. stones, and it looks like an Edwardian picture. Tell, tell us a bit about that. Well, um... It's actually a picture taken by Mark uh, Connors um, of Yaffle Press. Um, and it's um, Bolton Abbey, the stepping stones of Bolton Abbey. And it, it's, it's not actually, it looks old fashioned, but it's actually um, taken, um, I think, last summer Gosh, or the summer before. Yeah, that's really um, interesting. I'm looking at it and, it and it really, I mean, now I'm looking closely, of course, you've got people with dogs on leads and that there's a pram and you know that hadn't looked closely enough but it, when you look at it it's something about the stance and this is going to make yeah. no difference this is going to be very irritating to radio listeners <laughs> but the stance of the chap on the left on the yeah. stepping stone there's something with his hand on his hip it's yeah. so kind of almost posed Edwardian but yes tell us about it the, but if you look closer he's got his tracksuit trousers on and uh, oh, you yes. know there's all Ooh. there's all kinds of contrasts in this um there's somebody's fallen in the water as well, which um, you can't really see unless you look closely in front of him. Um, while all these all these extended family members, I, I imagine them as staring from the riverbank, looking at these these people one step at a time going over the stepping stones, That's which in effect are the small havocs, perhaps. Lovely. There is a small havoc taking place in the exactly. Photograph. Yes. Now I see. Now I see. <laughs> Wonderful. It's a good picture. Mark's, Mark's very talented with the camera. He is indeed. Yes, I've seen a lot of his photographs. Very interesting. Read us one more poem, if you will, before we come on to other things. OK. Um, I thought I'd do this one. Um, this is a sort of mental health poem. 
And this is about those kind of difficult conversations that we sometimes need to have. This is called Kitchen. This'll be a while, she says, nodding towards the cupboard where I know the Kit Kats are. I offer one more time, but she's insistent. It's easy for me. It's my kitchen. I know where everything goes. Her cable knit is soaking wet, down her front and at her wrists. A whole bag of spuds is peeled and clean. Is it like what we used to call living on your nerves, she asks. I guess, I say, sort of, I think. We haven't got a clue. She switches to her other peeler, and the carrots take their turn. Yeah. They, they feel very closely packed, the poems. Yes. Um, and when you look at them first, they, they seem very concrete, and then they're, for me, quite um, elliptical. They sort of, I have to look at them again, and I like that in a poem. Uh, and and they, they, they do bear um, re repeated looks, glances, um, absorptions. And uh, yeah, oh, that's and good I, to hear. I like um, that. <laughs> and, uh, and Einstein in a garden shed from the first poem is a, is a lovely image to, to finish that poem with. Yeah. Yeah, they're very visual too. Very, they, give, they, they, give, they give me pictures. That's good. Um, so before we we'll, we'll we'll return to small havocs if that's okay with you yes. um in a bit and have some more poems for me but you you live in hull is that right you're just on the outside of hull yes in in a village just outside yeah and I, and um, i read that you left um humberside when you were 8 years old and returned i mean tell us tell us about that journey well my dad worked for uh, Reckitt and Coleman, um, who were one of the big employers in Hull. Um, I think they still are to some extent. Um, but at the time, his, his uh, career needed to, to move somewhere else because of fear of redundancies or whatever. So as economic migrants, we went south looking for a new job for him. And uh, we settled in Buckinghamshire, which is uh, very, very different from East Yorkshire, I would say. And uh, so I went to school there as the, as the kid with the Northern accent in the school full of uh, uh, Southerners and uh, grew up in that environment. I had to think of a word then that wasn't yeah. offensive. Yes, don't uh, worry. It's okay. Being an original Southerner myself, I could hear you struggling and I was amused <laughs> by that little pause. Go on. Yeah. Um, so I, I did that and then, um, you know, lived there. And, and because... You know, I grew up there and work sort of presented itself there after university or what have you. Um, and I'm, I met my wife there and, and, you know, I did most of my growing up there. Um, it's it's kind of odd being, um, you know, a, a northerner abroad, as it were, um, in as much as uh, you never lose it. And you become perhaps even more fiercely proud of it than um, people who are living it every day. Um, it's an odd thing. I mean, I know a lot of people you know, turn their nose up at people who've gone away and come back and all that kind of stuff. There's, there's been, uh, it's not been quite as well received in, in Hull as it is in other parts of Yorkshire, um, the, the, the story of the returning northerner. Um, but, um, you know, it, it, it's been fascinating for me to come back. We moved back seven years ago. Um, we just decided, because I, I have this heart condition and I'd, I'd stopped working uh, office-bound and stuff. So... Um, yeah, we moved back, and my my wife loves it. Um, she's settled in, um, and uh, obviously I've got family here as well. And uh, it it's taken some time, but it really feels like home again, which is beautiful for me. Yes, that that was really going to be my 
sort of next question really yes is it does it feel like home for you and and, and because it, i i lived in hull for a, about eight months or nine months i was writing a play about humble humberside police years right. ago and um i when i, when I talked to people in hull they, they they kind of it's interesting they they sort of talked about being there and staying there really that that they, they they kind of there was a sort of yearning with a lot of people to kind of maybe move out or the up but they it was mainly theoretical people tended yes. to stay um is that your experience yeah i think it's it well i mean obviously people do move away and i i often met people from hull when i was in london and what have you um but yeah um i can understand why they would as well um it's a very self-contained city both sort of philosophically and mentally um as well as everything else i mean it is remote by its very location um because it's it is the end of the line on the train it is it's, it's not somewhere you pass through easily it's it's more of a destination all the things larkin said about it to some extent are true um you know it's the kind of place um that you form a bond with that it's very difficult to explain to people in some of the more transient cities, if you see what I'm saying. Absolutely. Yeah, but it does feel like home for you now. Yes, absolutely. Um, my mum and dad are moving back after all these years. They're moving back this year. Um, they've uh, bought a house during the pandemic and done the things that people of, of that generation shouldn't be doing really at this stage. But uh, mm. yeah, they're moving back and it's going to feel even more like home then, I think. Great stuff. Read us one more poem before we have some music. Okay. Um, oh, sorry. I dropped That's all right. Um, I'm going to do this poem. This poem was written um, a couple of years ago um, in response to a brief for an advert, but unfortunately it was deemed too sad for the advert, so it didn't get picked. But this is called The Empty Chair. For a second, maybe, in the size between the Sunday set pieces... Round about the same time as the gravy goes cold, we stop and all our eyelines meet in moments and memories and magic, in the silence of the empty chair. And with love, an unforgotten love, we raise a glass to you. Mm, lovely, thank you. So I'm talking to Matt Nicholson about uh, Small Havocs, his new poetry collection. And, and Matt, uh, so if do you feel poetry is your home do you do any other kinds of writing i started off um when i when i stopped working i started off trying to write novels and i've written three and um i'm not very good at it so um i, I packed it in really I, I i think maybe with a lot of work and a lot of effort um but you know as you find with most poets the attention span isn't isn't long enough or, or yeah. driven enough to to write longer pieces um and that's certainly the case with me um so yeah just poetry at the moment and in terms of your publisher for this for this work for this new work small havocs yaffle are you mm. are you happy uh, that uh, that your your poems have found a home with yaffle yes i i think yaffle um it's still very new. I mean, it's only a couple of years into it, but um, already published a lot of uh, some really good people. I know there are some really good people coming down the line um, as well. And uh, yeah, it, it's it's a very family feel to it as a publisher. It's uh, very nice. I, I, I got on very well with my previous publisher, but, but Yaffle um, in this instance uh, is exactly the right one for this particular book, I think. And they're very handsome looking things. 
Yes, yes. They take the time to make the books look nice. Um, and I think, you know, when, when you're out and about and selling things face-to-face at gigs and stuff and, you know, you, you want to make your mark, um, it does help to have a good quality product in your hand. Great. So tell us about this first piece of music we're going to hear the, by the Hold Steady. Yes, um, this is a, a song that um, I stumbled upon quite literally. I came home from the pub one, I think it was a Friday night, and uh, Jules Holland was on, and I'd fallen asleep in front of Jules Holland in that kind of post-pub stupor. Mm. And I, I woke up to the opening chords of, of the song called uh, Stuck Between Stations by the Hold Steady. And it's a poem full of contrasts and contradictions and references, uh, beat poets and, and Kerouac and things like that. And it's a kind of uplifting doom that I kind of like. So uh, that, that's the best way to look at it, I think. Yeah, you've invented a genre there, I think. To, uh, yeah. Genre <laughs> uplifting doom. I like that very much. Anyway, we're going to hear the whole study uh, stuck between stations. <laughs>
We drink and we dry up and now we crumble in the dust We get wet and we corrode and now we're covered up in rust We drink and we dry up and now we crumble in the dust We get wet and we corrode and now we're covered up in rust So that was Stuck Between Stations by The Hold Steady, chosen by the poet Matt Nicholson, who is talking about Small Havocs, his new poetry collection with Yapple Press. So Matt, in terms of the poetry that you write, are you, what, what's, the, what's, the, what's the happiest pro- part of the process for you? Is it the origination of the poem uh, when you're out walking? Is it the the first draft is it the the refining is it the reading what uh, or do they are they all of equal value in terms of parts i think it, i think each poem sort of has its own highlight um sometimes with the more complicated ones or, or more form-based poetry it, it's the completion of the writing uh, that gives the biggest buzz but um for some of the more um expressive ones or, or some of the more emotional ones it's uh, standing on a stage in front of people and delivering it um I, I am the least natural performer um, by origin. I, I never wanted to do, um, I never wanted to stand up with a microphone and, and perform anything. But I fell into it one night, again, perhaps after too many pints, and, and did a bit of p- performance. And uh, it's that bit that gives me the biggest buzz for the more emotional or the more uplifting or the more loud poems, as it were. Mm. Well, you certainly struck me as somebody who is very comfortable with reading when you read during writing on air recently it's it's something that has been practiced and practiced and practiced i still um suffer terribly with nerves but i i've learned to to enjoy them a bit more and deal with them a bit better uh, and there's no, no excuse for no no substitute for for practice i'm afraid <laughs> absolutely and and in terms of where your writing started your poetry started did you have a particular moment where you felt poetry was you, your form? Whether Did you have some mentors along the way, people who are important to you, either published or in real, in real life, in person? Um, yeah, I, I, um, when I moved back to Hull, I joined a writing group and um, I took my uh, novels to this writing group on, on a monthly basis to the point where they got so frustrated and fed up of, of listening to these pages of this almost good enough novel um, that in the end they said for goodness sake write something else write some poetry and come to this open mic night with us so I, I, I tried to write some poetry and, and we went to um, a night called Away With Words in Hull 
and uh, which is still going, which is sort of six or seven years into it and is, is surviving through the lockdown because of online methods, etc. And I went and um, it was one of the most welcoming and uh, warm places I'd been since we moved back to Hull. And um, yeah, uh, there's a guy called Jim Higo who runs it and he's just the most effervescent. Um, he's, a, he's another uplifting doom um, kind of character and as much as his poetry is is very dark and, and um, sort of uh, kitchen sink but but with an amazing sense of humour and an amazing sense of energy and and I loved that and that kind of drove me on um, at the start and then I, I sort of got in the car and drove around Yorkshire and went to all the open mic nights I could find um, got involved with the firm of poets who were uh, knocking about at the time so I've, I've done a lot of work with Matt Abbott and, and Genevieve Walsh and Tori Garbutt, for example. Mm. And um, I actually went on tour with Matt Abbott when he did his Two Little Ducks tour um, in 2018. So he, he's been a big sort of mentor for me. Um, in terms of actual writers that I've, um, you know, from from the bookshelf, um, I'm you know, a big fan of, of Bukowski and, and, uh, and, well, you know, all the all the big names really are on my bookshelf, and I, I've read a lot of them. I don't I don't get Ted Hughes there. I've said it out loud. I'm probably going to be ostracised forever. Um, Not by me. But, <laughs> sorry, I'm really sorry. Not by me. Uh, all <laughs> oh, right, okay. Uh, Larkin, um, you know, obviously being from Hull, you can't avoid Larkin. Um, and why would you want to? Some of it's amazing. Um, so yeah, uh, it's interesting. I, I I'm reading a lot more contemporary stuff now so Jack Underwood and um, people like that Isla Kaminsky and, and books like that I've read recently have been uh, really humbling so I, I feel like I've got a lot of learning to do and do you are you a collaborator by instinct or are you um, a solo person well um, I'd love to I'd love to do some collaborations I haven't done in the poetry world as yet I, I have done in other aspects of life I've been very project driven in in my working career I did lots of various startups and things so that involved collaboration so I'm open to suggestions really <laughs> but well, I haven't done any as yet what was your 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 uh, your, your your previous career sorry it's slightly inviting that that where you, you 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 know you your reference to that It'd be interesting to know I was uh, um, um, in marketing. I, I wrote the sort of marketing plans for entrepreneurial new business startups and things like that. Um, and then I worked in, in various corporate businesses as marketing manager and director and stuff. Um, so forms of writing? Yes, yeah. And, and forms of, of looking at a blank sheet of paper and trying to come up with an idea, um, which I certainly mm. think has helped me in the writing since. Uh, I'm not frightened by... Uh, deadlines and I'm not frightened by blank sheets of paper which uh, you know are important things not to be scared of in this world and also your poems are concise I mean they really don't go on they don't ramble they don't they don't um they they, they don't waste space or time and they don't sort of linger beyond their 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 end so I mean I wonder whether marketing and has something to do with that I I, I don't know this is just me conjecturing um I think I think you're always going to be a product of what you've been through, whether it's conscious or not. So um, I'm not consciously trying to uh, sub-edit to, you know, fit it on a page or anything. Although 
the, the Small Havocs book, there's not one poem that goes over the page, which thrilled me immensely. And it was very good for my OCD that nothing went over the page. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think you can't help, you can't always unlearn some of the things you've learned earlier on in life. And I think you're probably right about that, that there's a conciseness to it. Yeah. I don't have a massive attention span, so the poems um, are as long as I can uh, concentrate for. I think there's a lot to be said, though, for what's not said in a poem and for the white space um, and the white space around the words. And um, I think there are a lot of poems uh, that I've read recently which seem to be sort of venturing into longer and longer poems as a, as a trend. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that, that worries me a bit because people go off off on a tangent and, and I find it difficult to, to find the meaning um, and find the uh, the core of what they're trying to write about. So uh, I try and keep things keep things quite short. Um, so Matt, yeah. Um, yeah, before we before we we have to, to tie up and, and, and say goodbye, which is a shame, but um, the lockdown period for you, how, how has that been? I'm I'm really lucky. I I can't pretend to be anything other than very lucky. I, it's very similar to what my life was like before the lockdown, in the sense of I, I work at home. Um, I go for a walk every day. Um, the only thing that's different is I haven't been able to go out shopping quite so frequently and and do because I like to cook as well. So I haven't I haven't been out um, in the supermarket shelves as often as as I'd like. Uh, but other than that, it's it's not been that different. My wife's obviously been working at home um, during the lockdown, which again we're very lucky that that's been able to work out. But um, it hasn't changed. I mean, the the sort of ambient sense of of stress that the whole world seems to be feeling um, means that there's more of an audience for poetry, I think, um, and there's more people writing poetry as a result. So I, I I felt more part of a bigger audience and more part of a bigger group as a result of lockdown but it hasn't imp- it hasn't impinged on my freedoms as much as it has for a lot of people so i'm very lucky in that respect um one of the things that lockdown has done um was um basically cancelled about 20 gigs that i had overnight so um when the book came out i was uh, scheduled to be driving all over the country um to you know read from small havocs um so rather than actually get out and do all of those gigs um i've worked with a a filmmaker in hull called dave lee um who's who's a legend uh, in these parts and he's he's a very very talented filmmaker and he he's done a film of small havocs so basically it's a sort of short film of uh, i think it's five or six of the poems um and he's he's done a sort of interrogation of me to uh, fill in the gaps between the poems um, and uh, filmed them all on some of the most stunning views around the city uh, of Hull. So some of the old fish dock, etc. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, that's coming out soon. Um, hopefully, it'll be shown at some uh, festivals or um, some venues uh, when lockdown starts to ease a little bit more. So that's been a big focus for the last few weeks, uh, working on that. Great. And if if uh, in the meantime, can we find it online anywhere when it comes? Uh, there are bits of it online at the moment. Some excerpts are on my Facebook and on my web page, which is mappoet.com. Um, but I, I'm, I'm holding back the full thing with all the chat and, and uh, the banter uh, that goes with it um, until uh, hopefully in October when I'm hoping it's going to be shown in Hull first for its premiere. And then uh, then hopefully it'll go on the social medias and, and uh, circulate that way. 
Well, I'm really looking forward to that, and and I really would recommend to listeners uh, Small Havocs, published by Yaffle Press. I'm sure you can get hold of it. If you, if you get in touch with Yaffle, Yaffle, or also um, it's available through my website, um, which is mattpoet.com. Marvelous. Um, all my books are for sale on there. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah, we haven't we haven't talked about you previously. How many how many have you had previously? Um, three in total. So this is the third. Yeah. Lovely. So they're on your website if people want to get. In yes, that's right. Shame, shameless advertising. Sorry. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, would you to finish off? Would you possibly read us one more of the poems from Small Havocs? One more Small Havoc. I shall. Um, and this is a, a poem um, about legacy, uh, what we leave behind. This is called Relentless Determinism. My considered imprint, a finger smear on this smashed glass planet an enigmatic aura in an overcrowded room. There will be no fossils to descend from me, no wax recordings that will speak of you. All I can do is post these words on rented billboards in dark alleyways, paste them to the windows of bungalows in cul-de-sacs, where no blue plaque will commemorate the havoc in my heart. Oh, lovely stuff, yeah. Well, thanks so much, Matt, for talking to us today. It's, it's been a been, pleasure. Thank uh, you. It's, it's great. Really, thank, thanks for giving us that time. And also, uh, yeah, we do, as I say, listeners do go out and buy the book, find the film. We're going to hear a final piece of music from you. So tell us about that. Um, this is a, a track from The Cure. And um, when the album Disintegration came out, um, it's the first track on that album and it, it's one of the most beautiful and plaintive pieces of music I've ever heard. Um, and it has some of the simplest and most naive sort of teenage lyrics to it. Um, and yet there is some real structure and, and cleverness to the writing of the lyrics. And it, it's just um, just beautiful and it's, it's called Plain Song.
Love the haiku. Love the sonnet. Love the quatrain and the couplet. Love the words. From East Leeds FM. Hello and welcome to Love the Words. You've been listening to Matt Nicholson there talking to me yesterday and very nice to hear from him about his new poetry collection. Um, In a moment we're going to be hearing a brand new piece from Jimmy Andrex about the 1970s, particularly Stars on Sunday, that little lauded cultural phenomenon. A few things to give out. Uh, just this is something that was sent to me by Teresa O'Driscoll from Leeds uh, Irish Health and Homes. They're running a number of writing initiatives and they'd love you to get in contact if you have any Irish heritage at all. You want to be involved in a new publication or in a writing group that she's running. So I'm going to give you Teresa's number. She is on 0113 Leeds number 26256. One four two six two five six one four, or you can email her Teresa at l i h h dot org. Teresa t e r e s a at l i h h dot org. That's Leeds Irish Health and Homes. So, if you're from an Irish heritage, you want to get involved in some writing, they're running some really interesting events. So. Jimmy Andrex, Stars on Sunday. What did you do in the 70s, Grandad? Well, despite what you've been told, most of it was a lot like this. camera in your head now pans away to a genial, balded man, Jess Yates, gently manhandling the funereal outro chords of the song. Stained glass windows, rescued from a demolished church in Bury which once graced the great exhibition in Hyde Park, are behind the man and his organ. Ooh, missus. Now, he picks up a letter from a pile and reads from an Ada Howroyd of 5 Springston Avenue, Chickenley, to ask if she could hear Moira Anderson singing... Where is love? Yes, folks, welcome to the world of Stars on Sunday, Yorkshire TV's evening godslot, where TV companies were required to have something religious as part of their franchise deals, where a former cinema organist turned top TV producer introduced celebrities from the worlds of light entertainment and, on occasions, Hollywood royalty, reading familiar Bible passages where cabaret singers would sing hymns, non-specific protest songs or any material that could conceivably be shoehorned in without being struck by lightning. Where somehow said producer had managed to talk all of them into it for the equity minimum rate of 49 quid. 
where a nation, the vast majority of whom had lived through World War II, still tuned in by the million for a weekly dose of comforting, soporific spirituality, which went somewhere to making up for the fact that hardly any of them bothered to turn up at a church anymore. Where presenters read out viewers' full address to make life easier for stalkers. Innocent better times of Stuart Hall, Jimmy Savile or Rolf Harris might have said. Stars on Sunday's audience was never less than 5 million and sometimes reached 17. Jess Yates, known as The Bishop, was one of the most famous people in Britain and his life story, encompassing his daughter Paula's tragic fame and demise as well as being toxically intertwined with that of the equally famous talent show host and human shitstorm Huey Green, is worth telling if only because young people today would struggle to comprehend what popular culture actually looked like in the 1970s. This is especially true, as there appears to be no extant video material to testify to the show's existence. Which, in the post-internet age, puts it on a par with mining dwarves and fatal accidents involving giants amongst your runner beans. For this writer, it conjures up glum weekly visits to grandparents, one of whom would now be classed as having a learning disability and mental health problems. My response, aged five, was simply not to like her or ever let her touch me. Very enlightened, you are indeed a child of the universe. Mind you, the TV was one of only two signs in their house that the 20th century had actually happened yet, along with the barely functioning gas cooker and dentures. The horror only ended when, as a grim finale, there would be a recording of the massed ranks of the Salvation Army Brass Band and Chorus, so numerous they could have defended Czechoslovakia, singing, When We Go Marching to Glory, waving tambourines in unison. You have to believe me when I'm describing this, because I've not been able to find any video evidence, which I suppose makes a refreshing change. Born in Manchester in 1918, Jess Yates moved to Colwyn Bay in Wales where, age 15, he became a cinema organist. After World War II, he went back on the cinema organ circuit before making his way into the early days of television via a stint with the fledgling Children's Film Foundation. He worked on the first Sooty Show in 1953, as well as the good old days and various other staples of early TV, before giving it all up to run a guest house in Clandudno. Whilst there, little more than a year after getting married, his daughter, Paula Yates, was born. After his death, it was revealed that Huey Green was her biological father, a turn of events complicated even further by lurid claims made by his ex-wife. Hella Torren, a former dancer who'd turned her hand to writing erotic novels, claimed she didn't remember having a fling with Huey till years later, and that Jess Yates might have, and I quote again, put something in me cocoa so that Huey Green could rape her. Perhaps unsurprisingly, the marriage failed, the couple split up, and Yates left the hotel business, returning to filmmaking for Warwick Films. The success of this led to a job with the newly created Yorkshire Television in 1968 as head of children's programmes, where abominations like Junior Showtime unleashed the likes of Bonnie Langford, Mark Curry and Lisa Stansfield into an unsuspecting world still recovering from two world wars. Described by the Penguin TV companion as one of the worst shows of all time, 190 of its 193 episodes are believed to have been erased. You see, there is a God. Despite this, 
Yates had a hit in 1968 with Choirs on Sunday, which led in turn to Stars on Sunday a year later. Before you ask, this isn't smug revisionism. Me and my sister thought it were tacky cornball pap while we were both still in the infants. Philologists often contend that language shapes our thinking. However, it's true that even before we had the vocabulary to express such a notion, it felt clear to me, down in my gut, that this was thin material. And if there was anything in this god stuff, there had to be something more and better than this tepid, waiting-for-the-grave tedium. Take one of its regular stars, Lovelace Watkins. Who? Yes, that according to his suspiciously benign Wikipedia entry, is the name he was born with. Mr and Mrs Watkins' little boy was a stars on Sunday fixture, as much as the elaborate sets which included the facade of a mansion house, a waterfall, a rose garden and a paddock, all of which were constructed in Yorkshire TV's Kirkstall Road Studios. In one of the few bits of YouTube video that still exists, Roy Orbison, yes, Roy Orbison, warbles where have all the flowers gone in front of a fully functioning 20-foot square fountain. It looks like an open mic in a garden centre, but it is Roy Orbison after all, and one sign of an artist's true greatness is their ability to transcend their surroundings. It's pathetic, but old Roy, whose life embraced personal tragedy to rival Jess Yates never sounds so convincing as when it looks like he's down on his luck. Things could have been worse. He hadn't met Bono yet. And as for Lovelace Watkins, according to the previously mentioned Wikipedia entry, he was, quote, the Black Sinatra, and his stage personality was earthy and electric. However, this charisma and the power and quality of his voice never came quite over on his record releases. Hmm. Seeking just for yourselves, here's a brief snatch of Lovelace Watkins performing on TV during the final of Miss TV Times. Like I said, welcome to the 1970s. Once upon a time, a girl with moonlight in her eyes placed her hand in mine. And said she loved me so But that was once upon a time So very long ago The video clip is revealing on many levels. The female contestants troop off in their bathing costumes while a black guy with straightened hair mutilates the still-twitching corpse of an anodyne ballad. But, for those whom Lovelace was right up their street, such was the accessibility of celebrities back then, you could easily catch him live at the end of your street. Watkins was one of the many big stars who made their living on the chicken-in-a-basket circuit of clubs like Wakefield Theatre Club and Batley Variety Club. But, lest you think I'm being arch here, Lovelace Watkins was a genuine star. And unlike many celebs today, he did at least do something. Audiences loved him and showed their appreciation by stumping up the hard-earned to see him do whatever it was he did. Plus, the list of guests that Jess Yates cajoled up to Lee's to perform is truly impressive. 
from the world of music, there were giants like Bing Crosby, Matt Munro, Johnny Mathis, Gene Pitney, Cliff Richard, obviously, Sandy Shaw and Eartha Kitt. Movie stars like Howard Keel, Raymond Burr, Ralph Richardson, John Gielgud, James Mason and Diana Rigg all trooped down Kirkstall Road for their 49 quid and mixed in with more esoteric attractions like the Doncaster Wheatsheaf Girls Choir. The show even survived the interesting practical difficulty of Yorkshire TV's mast falling down at Emily Moore in 1969, Christian soldiering on until 1979, though the last five years were without its talismanic founder and therein lies another tale. Huey Green was another household name via his presence on Opportunity Knox, which was the X Factor of its day. A former child actor from a troubled background, he was rejected by his mother, who carried on a string of affairs while his father used him as a showbiz meal ticket. This dysfunctionality was typified by the day when, aged 17, after finding his father crying outside the family's hotel room, he entered to find his mother having sex with another man. Mind you, he'd also fathered and abandoned a child of his own by then, so he was clearly a fast learner. Later on, he would devote large chunks of his talent show to lengthy right-wing political lectures, suggesting, on one occasion, that Harold Wilson's government were communists and should be replaced as Prime Minister by the Duke of Edinburgh. In 1974, at the end of his Christmas show, he delivered a long monologue about the state of the country, ending with the cry, Wake up! echoing the Nazis' use of Deutschland Erwache, which was followed by a choir singing a song called Stand Up and Be Counted, the lyrics of which ran... Stand up and be counted, where the managers manage and the workers don't go on strike. You don't get that with Simon Cowell. Jess Yates was also Huey Green's producer, and the pair often clashed. In 1974, Huey and Jess clashed once too often over something or other, and Huey's Machiavellian response was to tip off a friendly journalist that Jess, by now separated from his wife for over ten years, was in a relationship with a much younger woman who was a dancer. In a classic 70s tabloid Bishop and Showgirl expose, Yates was sacked from Stars on Sunday and replaced by Robert Dougal, a former newsreader. Viewers didn't seem to twig that Yates was never a real bishop. Younger listeners, baffled at how people can be taken in by internet nonsense nowadays, may take comfort, or despair, from the notion that it was ever thus. The rest is run-of-the-mill stuff encompassing Live Aid, Bob Geldof, children with silly names, more dysfunctional family life, mental health problems and Paulie Yates leaving Bob Geldof and her kids, bothering with Michael Hutchins of In Excess before his death by suicide or auto-asphyxia whilst masturbating, take your pick, and Paula's untimely and desperately sad death aged just 41 by heroin overdose on the birthday of one of her own children. Fourteen years later, Peaches, her eldest daughter, also died, aged 25, of a heroin overdose. All good, clean family entertainment, folks, and I mean that more sincerely, as Huey Green would have said. So, what did you learn in the 70s, Grandad? Well, first of all, despite what we're now told, it wasn't a vibrant day-glow discotheque we stumbled out of to invent punk rock and Thatcherism. And no one really liked ABBA either, especially ironically. Second, Everything that was popular we now see as pretty rubbish, despite the best efforts of advertisers who cherry-pick what's aged slightly better to sell hatchbacks to classroom assistants and scent to divorcees. Thirdly, and most importantly, when older people aren't back to something, take it with a large pinch of salt. They almost certainly didn't live through the war. 
In the end, all we really have is faith and love. And sometimes even they seem to let you down. It's easy to mock the apparent lack of sophistication of previous generations. It's fun too, but there never was a golden age. There was always just stuff. So next time you're in a big crowd at, say, Glastonbury, thinking this is the best thing in the world, just remember how many people used to tune in to Stars on Sunday. Here's Harry Seacombe again. He fought in World War II and was in the goons, you know. Love the cases, love the clauses, love the adverbs and the antecedents, love the words. From ELFM. Sometimes 